Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the 45th edition of the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that wants Britain to remain in the EU as long as they allow Latveria, Krakosia and Genovia in at long, long last. This week we're going to tackle big filmmakers tackling bigger topics and I don't mean the delicious nutty chocolate bar. We've got Zero Dark Thirty, we've got Lincoln, we hail the return of the Austrian oak as Arnold Schwarzenegger takes a last stand and we're also going to be chatting to the great man and Zero Dark Thirty star and friend of the magazine, Mr. Mark Strong. But first, politics is also in the mind of my three colleagues this week. Starting off with a woman who knows only too well the perils of the conflict between two sets of people inhabiting the same land, riven by internal differences leading to devastation and inevitable tragic bloodshed. But that's what you get when you move south of the river, isn't it, Helen O'Hara? <laughs> yeah, New Cross says no, Chris. New Cross says no. Down with the north of the river. Uh, next up is our art house guru, Mr. Phil Dissemblin, who's just returned from the toy fair, is that right? Yes. Where he uh, spent ages trying to broker a peace treaty between Lego and Stickle Bricks. How did that go, Phil? Went well. Went well? Went very well. At long last. The, to- the toy fair is amazing. We saw some amazing <laughs> things. We saw Lego's um, um, Man of Steel uh-huh. range uh-huh. and Iron Man 3, and they've got a um, Lone Ranger a train set jailbreak mineshaft something or other hoo-ha pretty much the whole they talked us through the whole story of the film and I discovered that there was a sequence in The Lone Ranger that basically came from a Lego kit Lego said okay we've done we've built these things according to the film that we've seen for you but we've also got this carriage thing can you incorporate it into the film please because we really like it and I guess Brookheimer went okay yeah this is what filmmaking has come to um and so they've got a sequence that was basically pioneered literally by uh, little plastic men. That's happened before, hasn't it? There's been lots of comic book movies where people have gone, oh, can you do this with Batman next time? Not the Nolan films, obviously. Gosh, uh, can you have a bit can we, introspective Batman? It's selling really well next Christmas. Can you can you put that in your movie, please? You know, but in the uh, the Schumacher ones, weren't there instances where uh, toy companies went to Joel Schumacher and went, can you do Batman skiing off a roof or whatever it was that he does or the Batman credit card? And he went, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> Anything will do. It, we've often suspected that extra characters have been added to certain films purely to sell toys. And action figures. Polonius in um, Hamlet. Polonius in Hamlet. I mean, does he need to be there? No. Doesn't need to be there. You know, with your art house guru hat on, Phil. Were you Godo? I mean, really? He, yeah, I know. <laughs> Can that be amazing? What if we Godo? Godo <laughs> action figure. That would Finally. be great. I was hoping Lego might have released like a Bergman range, <laughs> the Seventh Seal sort of chess set. Or, or Weirdly, God. they do have a um, Council of Elrond set which is coming out this August that's amazing which is which looks <laughs> I hate to, I love Lego but it looks kind of boring <laughs> what do you mean you can like stand them up sit them down oh, like wiggle one and another one like it's talking talk is, is there an elf that takes notes in the corner yeah, yeah they've it's got an minutes. elf taking minutes exactly is, is it a set, blind goblin is the uh, Elrond set unnecessarily broken into three parts <laughs> oh satire <laughs> Last but not least is uh, Ali Plum, who's recently returned from an ambassadorial outing to the land of his birth, South Africa. Do you remember the politics riff about 10 minutes ago? Anyway, I've written this joke. I'm going with it anyway. Tell me, Ali, how are relations these days between the indigenous people of South Africa and those fucking prawns, man? Uh, better. Wait for it. Yes. Now, now that the prawns have been granted good diplomatic immunity. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yes, all I know about South Africa, I learned from Lethal Weapon 2. And it's a really District positive 9. picture. Yeah, really. <laughs> really positive. Yeah, until District 9 came along. 
And, uh, you know, obviously Cry Freedom and movies like that. Sure. But, but mainly Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, as ever, we're going to kick off by taking questions and comments from you guys first. At Clary Tramp asks, and Helen, I know you love this question. I do. In honour of Arnie's upcoming interview, which of his characters would you want to be in a parallel universe? Uh, Helen, you're, you're going to kind of abstain from this question, well, aren't you? I don't really want to be Arnie. Or, or you know, anyone who looks like Arnie, I'll be honest. As I an mean, Arnie lookalike, I resent that, like, <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> it is often remarked how much you look like the Austrian oak, yes. Yeah, but then you're a massive um, but, sword. You know, I mean, you know, I respect him as himself. If I was to say a favourite Arnie character, that's uh-huh. another thing. Okay, let's, let's do that. Okay, fine, that would obviously be um, uh, Dutch in Predator. I don't know if I'd want to be Dutch, necessarily. I love Matrix, because mm. John Matrix from the Commando, because... He can carry a log with one arm. Um, <laughs> he doesn't seem to have any real limits to what he'll eat in the kitchen. His daughter, Jenny, makes him a dreadful sandwich, <laughs> the contents of which are never revealed. <laughs> he just seems to lap that stuff up. He plays with deer. He can, he can kill people from 100 yards. He's awesome. He kills like almost twice as many people as any other Arnold Schwarzenegger character. He's, over, he's north of 100. He's north of 100. Yeah, so yeah. He's, he's quite lethal. That's because of Alverde, That's- isn't it? Uh, it's because he kills everyone he meets pretty much <laughs> generally speaking that's 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 it I actually have an answer to your original question and I would be if I could be any Arnie character I'd be Prince Happy from around the world <laughs> in 80 days because <laughs> all he does as far as I can remember and I've watched the film once on TV he sits in a jacuzzi with some hot girls yeah it's quite sleazy isn't wears it wears a silly, a silly crown yeah. oh, hang on hang on if you had to have that hair though I could deal with it <laughs> I, I don't know. There's, there's something quite open about that hair. And I think in a parallel universe, Prince Happy would be the, the target of a police investigation by now. I've just got that feeling. There's, there's something about the something man. Not that, right something there. not quite right there. Something not quite right, Phil. I'd want to play one of one of the characters, one of his characters that causes maximum havoc. So, Governor of California? Oh, <laughs> political satire. satire. You got political. I'm coming back. Um, I, I probably, people know, that I do love a pun. Runs in the family. So maybe Mr. Freeze, just for his... Really first base pun. You're not gonna send me to the cooler uh, and all that exactly. sort of stuff. Yeah, ice. Yeah, yeah. Ice to yeah. see. Uh, yeah, dreadful. It's good stuff. It's dreadful. I like. I like the idea that you know there's a character called Maximum Havoc. I thought that's what you were gonna say at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was trying to rack my brains about Arnie films. When's he ever played Maximum Havoc? He's yet to play Maximum Havoc. But and judging by the last stand, it's coming soon. You remember when Dolph came in and I talked to him about Max Gatling, and he just said, "How could I not take that role?" <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger is Max Havoc Okay, next question is from at Dave Straw all the questions are from Twitter this week uh, given at Rio Ferdinand oh, that's, there's a real contrast isn't there mm-hmm. uh, from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Rio Ferdinand I'm a Liverpool fan uh, wants to be James Bond does he? does he? I didn't know that does Rio Ferdinand want to be James Bond? Uh, is he, does he take uh, you the pleasure to tuxedo? Let's assume does. for the purposes Dave of the Dave knows what he's talking about. All right, I always trust someone uh, called Dave Straw. Um, given that Rio Ferdinand wants to be James Bond, any other footballers that would make an excellent 007, presumably with that on the back of their shirt? Yes, that assumes that Rio Ferdinand would make an excellent 007, which I sort of <laughs> argue with. James Bond's super spy wind-ups. He does seem to have matured over the last few years. Bond. Bond, especially, but also I'm thinking maybe mainly Rio Ferdinand. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, from a, a, as objective as I can be about a Manchester United player, he does seem to have grown up a little bit, and he seems to be doing a lot of work for charity, just like Bond. 
I'd say Salvatore Scalacci because it'd be interesting to have an Italian James Toto Bond. Scalacci <laughs> seriously who should team up with Max Havoc <laughs> I can do better than this Toto Annihilation Ali who have you got for this I've got just one name on my sheet uh, my little notebook I write for this uh, podcast thing we do and it's Bruce Grobelar basically because I like the name I think that's pretty much it. Putting off assassins with his bendy spaghetti legs. <laughs> and his ability to, you know, be Zimbabwean. <laughs> He's not the best name in football, though. What about Eric Jemba Jemba? Indeed. Or the former Newcastle United player, Brian Penis. Anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> Sorry. We've got a real cracker from Ant Dr. Mysterio. Should Robert De Niro stop acting to prevent any further damage to his legacy? Now, I should point out this is he recently Oscar-nominated Robert De Niro, so I'm pretty sure he's doing okay. But, uh, Helen, this is a, a, a fairly fair question before Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah, before Silver Linings Playbook, absolutely. I think he's back on form in that, and he kind of showed us that he could combine comedy with actually being good as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fairness, some of his comedies back in the day weren't, weren't bad. No, true. Um... But, you know, you shouldn't have to rest on your laurels just because you have really nice laurels. I mean, <laughs> he still has the laurels, right? And, he still has uh, the laurels. And, and surely we should just... You know, it's like remakes, you know? Just because they've remade something, you still have the original. You don't need to watch the remakes if it's going to upset you. Just because we have Little Fockers or Meet the Little Fockers <laughs> or My Little Fucker or whatever the hell it's called yeah. doesn't mean we don't have Taxi Driver. Exactly. I mean, I watched The Deer Hunter the other day and, and watching films like that and Mean Streets and, you, I mean, he just, like, from the, from the mid-70s to the mid-90s, just everything he did pretty much was was worth watching from extraordinary to, to just really really good lately he's done he's really good in Silver Linings Playbook I don't think it's an Oscar nominatable type deal but there you go welcome back sort of thing Limitless he's really fun in Stardust likewise but he's otherwise he's done some terrible right things yeah. and I just wonder why because he's done some terrible things he, you know does he need to be working with Mr. Jinx <laughs> I don't know this man was a was a was a was a um, Corleone and maybe the, maybe none of those mu- movies paid him that much I don't know do you think he's struggling for cash well there is it's, it's been long said hasn't it that he has this production company the, the Tribeca Film Festival and he runs Tribeca and that he's been taking monies, monies he's been taking roles that, that pay well so he can keep that going which is a, a fairly decent concern I guess so that explains some of the paycheck gigs over the last few years but do you think about do you think I just think about legacy I don't think they really I think we see it from a different perspective. They're just their jobs often. And like you say, it's money to help them do other things, perhaps yeah. with this stuff. And we go, we look askance and go, how could you be in that? That's terrible. Um, when you were in that, that was amazing. And also, but I don't think they really were, you know, it's just they're professionals and they do these things. Nobody sets also, out to make a bad film either. Nobody said, exactly, I was about to say the same thing. Nobody sets out to make a bad film. They may set out, set out to make a fun, silly I'm lighter film but you know pretty sure if you read the script of Jack and Jill though you, you'd think some sort of juju voodoo magic would be required to well, turn there that are two or some... three good jokes in that well hopefully people will email or tweet and let us know what they think about yeah, this yes absolutely does legacy matter if Bob Al if you're listening please tweet in <laughs> let us know what you're thinking uh, next question is from at drown or drawing d-r-o-u-y-n uh, and they ask just watched Speed on Blu-ray closed out by Billy Idol Favourite action movie, end credits rock song. Now, this is the sound of me rubbing my hands together, because this is right in my wheelhouse. But uh, Ali, you look you've got a big smile on your face. I'll start with you. I've got one, which is Crank's uh, credit song, which is by uh, Rocket from the Crypt, and it is Bring Us Bullets. <laughs> and it is just exactly what you think it might be when it's made by Rocket from the Crypt, and it's called Bring Us Bullets. Lots of <laughs> chugging guitar and lyrics that involve death. 
and it's just what you want as you're filing out the cinema punching anything that moves or doesn't move did you do that after seeing Crank? I kicked a lot you kicked? <laughs> just <laughs> randomly came out of the cinema and started kicking people? guys yeah. who's rocking to the crypt? I believe they're a soft rock band. Is this right? They're Do you know James a, Taylor? Akin to the Spice yeah, Girls? Yeah, yeah. Nothing like James Taylor. Helen, <laughs> <laughs> who's James Taylor? Soft rock guy from the 70s, I think. Oh, <laughs> nothing like Rocket to the Crypt. Why didn't you just say that in the first place? Um, yes, any more? Uh, Commando. We talked earlier about Commando. Commando. We Fight for Love by Power Station. There you Amazing go. Amazing like song. Power Station. Somewhere, somehow. It's amazing. Oh all right, wow. so those by two. I think we could have a separate podcast on this. <laughs> we, we could do. I j- just before getting to the closing credit song, I mean, I watched Speed the other night, actually. Oh. And what struck me is the amazing badness of the of the font in the opening <laughs> credits. <laughs> Genuinely, this is the kind of thing we talk about now in 2013, right? We all care about typography all of a Are sudden. Are you a Helfetta can or a Helfetta can't? <laughs> Zero it's Dark really Thirty has bad. great fonts, by the way. Yeah, it does have great fonts, you're right. But no, uh, I'm not usually the kind of person who, who notices this stuff, but just it looks so shonky. And it's such a good film, and it has this really shonky typeface at the beginning, and, and it, it actually took me out of it. Have we ever done fonts as the poster mashup? Uh, we're doing we're it doing next it right week. Now, I'm not kidding me. Yeah. Spoiler. Are you kidding me? Wow. Really? I've already got a few. I want the Little Mermaid, but done in Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> Very, Very good. good. How about Ding Very Batman niche. Begins? <laughs> <laughs> Helen, do you have any? I'm, I'm probably forgetting millions. The one that came to mind was uh, Foo Fighters at the end of Thor, which was Walk. Yeah, that's I a good one. Walk, yeah. yeah which was that. which was exciting for me because when we saw that film for the first time, it was in April, mm. and I had had a preview copy of that uh, Foo Fighters album, Wasting Light. And the song, the album hadn't been released yet, but I'd already listened to it dozens of times. I knew that song, loved that song. And I was like, oh my God, that's Foo Fighters for the new album. And, oh, um, you were a Muppet? Do you remember at the time? <laughs> one week only, I was a Muppet. <laughs> yeah, one week only. And I was, I, I kind of thought, I had Marvel heard that because the album hadn't come out. So maybe there's some sort of chicanery going on with uh, Foo Fighters. I've got a, a, a couple. Um, it's not really a rock song, but um, I love the way that Con Air finishes with that dreadful Leanne oh, Rhymes song. I actually I, love that as well. How do I live without <laughs> you? It just seems really incongruous with what's gone before. Um, we mentioned Commando, Power Station, We Fight for Love. Uh, Aerosmith playing I Don't Want to Miss don't a Thing miss at the end thing. of Armageddon. Yep. Just after Bill Fickner says, I just wanted to shake the hand of the daughter of the bravest man oh, I ever met. So many ofs in that sentence. And it's always everybody. Yes, it's, it's not a very elegant sentence, but it's not a very elegant film. Uh, John Cafferty's Hearts on Fire from Rocky Four. You can't beat that. And there's a really, really weird one that popped into my mind, um, which comes at the end of George A. Romero's Day of the Dead, which is an extraordinarily bleak zombie film that ends with this weird calypso ballad called The World Inside Your Eyes, which mm. actually has lyrics it's, there's, there's an instrumental version earlier in the film but there's, it has lyrics over the end of it so check out the end of the film it's just it's quite a weird sort of juxtaposition so check that one out if you can it's written by uh, the composer of that film was John Harrison oh the the villain in the new Star Trek. Star Trek 2 wow. wow it all links together uh, and that's quite enough of that if you want to send in any questions any comments you can twitter us we're at Empire Magazine Helen you can do this bit by now off by heart oh pretty much go on then uh, you can get in touch with us on Facebook where we're Empire Magazine or you can email us at podcast at empiremagazine.com not that anyone ever does but no. don't forget the hashtag what's the hashtag hashtag Empire Podcast otherwise we won't see it so there you go uh, anyway time for the first interview of the pod Mark Strong has always been a striking and memorable character actor as anyone who saw him alongside Daniel Craig and Christopher Eccleston and Gina McKee in Our Friends of the North can attest but he's really kicked off in the last few years becoming Hollywood's 
bad guy du jour in the likes of Kick-Ass, Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes. He's diversified since with complex turns in the likes of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and now a CIA chief searching for Osama Bin Laden in Zero Dark Thirty. He came in and spoke to Helen and myself about being thrown in at the deep end with Catherine Bigelow, about getting Arsenal tickets from Matthew Vaughan and about what happened to John Carter. God bless his soul. And we are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the star of Zero Dark Thirty, Welcome to the Punch, and, and numerous other films. And of course, a man whose giant floating head followed me around Cannes one year, which is uh, which was interesting to say the least. Yeah, very enjoyable experience. <laughs> Welcome, Mark Strong. How are you, sir? I'm very good. It's lovely to be here. In the booth. <laughs> in the booth. It's a bit, bit pokey. A uh, no, bit but, small. But, you know, it's uh, compact but bijou. <laughs> <laughs> bijou is the word we're going with. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, now, as a star of, um, recently you've, you've been in Green Lantern, John Carter. Uh, movies in which I'm sure you signed non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. but is Zero Dark Thirty the most secretive shoot you've ever been on? Without doubt when I went to meet them the very first time I, I wasn't allowed to see the script <laughs> if there was a script I auditioned uh, or you know did the, the scene that, that comes halfway through the movie when my character first comes in and tells everybody off that was the first thing I did I was sent a script subsequently but it was on email and if the computer didn't detect any movement i.e. page turning after a couple of minutes everything would go blurry and you'd have to reapply to see the script again so it was top <laughs> secret wow. yeah because you couldn't even disclose your character's name no at a certain point no and nor do I even know to this day who I'm actually based on or who the character of George Wright the guy I play in the film mm. is actually based on wow so how did you do your research well, very difficult to research people who work in the world of espionage anyway, but uh, it, it was what I had to do ultimately was realize that it's a job of work. It just happens to be the work of espionage. So essentially, they're all diplomat stroke civil servant stroke businessmen, the CIA operatives. Um, and in a way, it wasn't really necessary to know exactly who the guy was because mm. he's a kind of amalgam of all of that management level CIA type operative. So you have your first scene. When you're when you're reading the, uh, the the script the first time, yeah. and it is that scene where you come in and tear a strip off everybody in the CIA. Yeah, uh, was that the first thing you shot when you actually started the film? It was, and I'd flown to to Amman in Jordan, and I got into the hotel. This is an experience that actors always have. The first day of a film, if you're filming abroad, you'll you'll be flown somewhere, and everyone will be working the day that you arrive. They'll probably be filming, so you get there, you don't know anyone yet. You don't know if anybody's in the hotel. You don't know where everybody is. So you have a sort of lonely first night where you sort of just get a piece of paper shoved under your door with the next day's call <laughs> sheet telling you what time you need to be there. And that's exactly what happened to me in Jordan. So I'm there. I'm listening to the prayer, the call to prayer and everything outside is the heat. The curtains are billowing. It's all very evocative and and, uh, and not like London. <laughs> a little piece of paper comes under the door. And, you know, next day I turn up, I put the suit on and I'm in the room doing the scene and you know Faris Faris is there Edgar Ramirez is there Jessica Chastain's there Carl Chandler's there all the people in the movie are sitting there they don't have a word to say and I've just got to tear them off a strip and we do about 20 takes I do it again and again and again it's only at the end of the scene virtually after half a day has gone by that I end up shaking the hand and going hello nice to meet you how are you I'm Mark did you drop the accent as well or do you keep your accent when you're in a a movie no I I just did it I just hit them with both barrels and hoped that it worked and in a way I suppose not seeing them was was productive in a sense because you have to be the guy who's coming from outside who's giving them a hard time it's kind of a, a method approach to that scene really when you think about it yeah, yeah. Although it would have been quite nice to say hello to a few people when you get to some hotel in the middle of nowhere. It reminded yeah, me, in a, in a way, of the uh, the great Alec Baldwin scene in Glengarry Glen Ross. 
Uh-huh. And that was shot in a very similar way. He was on set and he was basically shunned by uh, the likes of Alan Arkin and Ed Harris because he was this guy, this young whippersnapper coming in to tear people off the strip. But, mm-hmm. uh, but afterwards... Did the relationships soften? They did, although the film was moving so fast that, again, I remember at the end of that scene, and we'd done it a few times, uh, suddenly everybody got up and left and started moving to the next location within the building. And everybody was so busy doing that that they'd forgotten to tell me that that was the end of the scene, that was the end of my work for the day. <laughs> so I was wandering around going, well, uh, where is everyone? What's, what's happening? Um, but it moved very fast, that film. Wow. So after this and and Body of Lies, obviously as well, you know, are you a bit of a, an expert on Middle Eastern politics? Have you have you done so much research that you know I feel like you've got a backing in the subject? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> both of those jobs were playing guys in the spy business. You know, I was the, I was the head of the uh, Mukhabarat in, in uh-huh. uh, Jordan, and then and then this one. And in fact, I realised I played a spy in Tinker Tailor as well. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sort of cornering the market in uh, espionage types. Mm. Um, Middle Eastern politics is baffling. So I think I've just I've just stuck to the straight and narrow and said the words on the page. <laughs> Probably wise. So is this leading in one direction? Bond villain. Oh, now that would be great, wouldn't it? Oh. I'd love to do that, especially as Daniel's a mate. Um, and he's signed up for a couple of more, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? <laughs> I would love that. That would be that would be great. But maybe we're too, I don't know, maybe we're too close. I don't know. Or maybe I've played too many villains or whatever, but you never know. Is there such a thing as too many villains? For me, no. <laughs> I love playing the villain, and I, th- I think uh, you know they get the best lines, and they're always memorable in anything that they're in. Um, but maybe the point comes where if you play too many, there is an agenda when you when you appear on the screen. People will automatically think, well, he's not trustworthy. Yeah. As I, as I played in uh, to your choices over the last couple of years, because um, you have played villains in big movies. I mentioned John Carter, Green Lantern, kind of a villain. He was he was definitely going that way. But you've also turned down. Did you turn down X Men First Class? Was that something that you didn't want to do? In the, yeah, yeah, I couldn't do another one yeah. of, uh, in, in the big studio pictures um, because I think. I I remember when they first started to, I mean ironically the very first thing I did where I played somebody kind of dark and was was on TV a character called Harry Starks in the long firm And the BBC at the time were adamant that I couldn't play that part because I was too nice I couldn't plumb the depths required to play this dark character I did it you know it won awards and then Suddenly there was a whole raft of villains were offered and I remember people saying be careful you know don't, mm. especially Jason Isaacs for one said to me having played that villain in the Patriot uh, he said you've got to think about now how many of these you want to play and I just really liked everyone that turned up you know I mean there was a character of Pinbacker with Danny Boyle how mm-hmm. can you turn that down mm-hmm. then, then Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes with Gar how can you turn that down Kick-Ass Frank D'Amico these are great parts so I thought, I thought, damn the torpedoes, full speed out. I'm just going to play them <laughs> and let's see what happens. And of course, what's happened is it's, they've naturally faded away. Mm. And the last few films I've done, I've, always, I've been playing good guys. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, uh, do you keep in touch with the likes? Because you've worked with Ridley uh, a few times. Ridley. Uh, sorry, Ridley. And, uh, Ritters. Matthew, Ritters. <laughs> and uh, so Matthew Vaughan, <laughs> as I'm sure he yeah. will become one day. Um, do you keep in touch with them even when they're off making other things? And I do, I do. I'm, uh, Ridley, I see every now and again... Um, uh, my wife's involved. With, she she runs his uh, company, uh, mm-hmm. Scott Free. I mean, we having done Body of Lies and Robin Hood with him. We went out for dinner one time, and um, he realised that uh, Liza Marshall, my wife, had made some couple of movies mm-hmm. that he not only liked that he bought the rights to to remake. Um, <laughs> uh, one was uh, Boy A. Oh yes, and yes. the other one with the Red Riding trilogy. Oh, of course. And he was like, "Wow, you made those!" So he immediately 
put her in charge of his company, so she now runs Scott Free. Wow. So I see Ridley on the, for that reason, and, and Matthew Vaughan, funny enough, I spoke to literally yesterday because he let me have his four tickets at Stamford Bridge to go and see the <laughs> Chelsea Arsenal game. So, yeah. So he, he's in your good books then right now. He's in my very, very good books. But also we talked a little bit about, um, there's a new, uh, Kick-Ass 2 is coming out. Yes. And there was a scene in there of, uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but uh, a, a relative of Frank D'Amico's. And Matthew and I talked about the possibility of maybe playing that part. Uh, I couldn't do it because of uh, dates issues. Mm. But again, you know, without wanting to give anything away, I think there might be a life in Frank D'Amico yet in the wow. Kick-Ass franchise. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, that's very, very... Very embryonic. It's, it seems strange this time of year. The Oscar uh, race also always seems to split into factions, where people are agitating against um, any movie for one reason or another. Mm. And what's it like being on the inside of that now? Being- it's fascinating. I mean, there's two things I would I would say according to that. Yes, there is a big possibility. Are there black ops involved with other people? You know, denigrating other people's movies mm. by by because I think Django is suffering slightly from is, uh, yeah. you know the discussion about racism. The Impossible is suffering from. The notion that why is that whole tsunami experience being represented by one white middle-class family mm-hmm. what about the yeah. whole asian experience so uh, when a salient characteristic comes up about a movie and the, the discussion is only about that it's always a shame and often you know forgets that the movie itself mm-hmm. is good and uh, did the movie transform as it went along because i know they were planning another movie about the hunt for ben laden mm-hmm. and then suddenly he was killed and then they had to switch tack very very quickly um, and did your involvement come about very quickly and then during the making of it did the script pages change Was were things changing constantly for you or was it very much static there was another movie it was about the failure to capture him in the Tora Bora Caves mm-hmm. uh, where they tracked him down to I think a two mile radius and that was really what they were concentrating on then and then while they were I think they'd finished that script and then the news came through that uh, he'd been captured and killed so they had to they ditched it completely and rewrote this story and knowing that they had a third act as Catherine described you know, which is obviously the, the the raid my involvement was that I I got a call saying she'd enjoyed me in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy mm-hmm. and would like to get me involved it was difficult to know what and nor could they be particularly specific what so the the feeling was very much would you like to work with Catherine and Mark on their movie about the hunt for Bin Laden uh, to which I had to I had to say yes so I then went over, I did that scene for them in a, in a room in LA for her and Mark and a couple of producers. And then they said, right, uh, yeah, we'd like to have you on board. Mm. And it was only subsequent to that that I, I then saw the script. Uh, but that did change slightly as we went along. But it was mainly to do with specifics mm. because Mark was very uh, serious about everything being as accurate as possible. So I'd find myself suddenly being given a page of handwritten scrawl with loads of jargon on that I couldn't understand that he had gleaned, you know, from the people that he was talking to that he knew was real, but uh, was absolute gibberish to me. So that kept <laughs> happening. And uh, um, I just want to talk to you again about being on the inside of something. Uh, we had James Purefoy in a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and we talked about his experience on John Carter and how Helen and I are both fans of that movie. Yeah. And um, I was on set as well. Oh, yes, yeah, right, you were. And um, how we felt it was unfairly targeted. It was one of those movies that people almost seemed to decide before it came out that's get John Carter. Hmm. What was it like being on the inside of that scene? Because I imagine you were able to see that coming yeah. about a month or so out. It's such a shame. I mean, I felt so sad because Andrew Stanton is an extremely clever guy. I mean, the man who wrote Wally and Finding Nemo is, you know, he, he can tell hmm. a story. Um, 
he was 150% committed to everything and he was so enthusiastic he enthused the rest of us he had an amazing production designer and the whole setup of everything in that movie felt as normal only even more so it was as if there was this monumental effort to create this incredible film and the idea that everybody seemed ultimately to review the budget (laughs) and also be disappointed that they'd seen elements of it in other science fiction stories before without acknowledging the fact that the books Mm. were written at the turn of the century on which the movie is based and of course Star Trek, Star Wars even Tarzan drew from From those Um, to be on the inside of all that was a it was very, very sad and slightly bewildering. Mm. But I've now done enough movies to know that you just cannot predict anything. As William Goldman said in Which Lie Did I Tell, nobody knows anything. <laughs> yeah. And that is absolutely true. And I've realised it's not just true of when you're on set making a movie and people say to you, is it going to be good? You cannot say. You have no idea. Mm. But even afterwards now, it seems to me that you see a, I've seen a movie and thought, wow, that's really great. And then the reaction hasn't been what I expected. I felt the same way about Body of Lies. Mm. I thought Body of Lies was a really solid, tight, good Absolutely. movie. Yeah. And yet, you know, when it came out, it, did, uh, it didn't do the business. Um, and the same of John Carter. I really, I really like that movie. And I think there's an honest attempt to, to make a, a film of those books. And it's thoroughly enjoyable, but so I don't really understand. Especially when, as an actor, you're committed to two more movies. Yeah. And you're sold in this grand vision that's going to sweep across a trilogy. That must be doubly disappointing then. I mean, is it definite that there's not going to be a second one? Have you heard anything at all? I haven't heard anything at all, no. Yeah. But I think it's pretty certain there won't be. I mean, it's all based on money, isn't it, ultimately, when it comes to the choice of making another one. And, uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't do well enough. I felt the same about Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. I really liked the whole build-up and, uh, you know... Jeff Johns' uh, commitment to Green Lantern and everybody worked on it with the best of intentions. You know, nobody makes a movie thinking, oh, let's just make a terrible movie. Let's not really try on this one, shall we? Should we just not bother? Everyone is really committed. And uh, so it's always a real shame when when it doesn't kind of catch fire in the right way. But I've, I've been doing it for long enough to just realise that that can that can happen at any moment with any movie and not to take it too personally. Mm. So what is next for you? Uh, well, Welcome to the Punch, a thing mm-hmm. I did with James McAvoy comes out in March, mm-hmm. which is um, a thriller, slick, London-based action movie. I've seen it. Uh, have you? I have an idea. Oh, yes. great, great. Which, which attempts, I think, to do two things. It, it tries that psychological element as well as the action movie element, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, that balance uh, is, is very interesting in the film and to, to make a sort of a film with a nod to Michael Mann rather than Guy Ritchie I think is a you know interesting for a London based yep. movie um, but I'm going to make uh, the next thing I shoot is um, a film called Before I Go to Sleep which is based on a, a best selling novel mm-hmm. by S.J. Watson which is the first novel about uh, a young woman who wakes up and every morning doesn't have any memory as a result of an accident that's happened to her in the past Nicole Kidman plays that part okay. Colin Firth plays her husband and I play her doctor so it's a three-hander called Before I Go to Sleep. That's not a bad cast. <laughs> that is not a bad cast at all. And um, hopefully, Mark, we, we might have you back in for Welcome to the Punch. But um, it's it's interesting because it's, it's you and James McAvoy and it's you as as action hero or yeah. action anti-hero, yeah. if you will. So what was it like throwing, throwing bullets around bits of London? I love doing that. And, you know, wherever possible, I'll always try and make a choice that is very different to the thing that I've done before. So when they came along and said, uh, how about it? I thought, I've never done anything like that before. And I sort of loved it. It is quite odd sometimes when the whole morning's work is taken up with you running from here to there with explosions around you <laughs> you know there's no acting required really you're just trying to avoid the squibs and get from one side of the room to the other without having a heart attack um, 
And I loved it. I, we had a, amazing sequences all filmed in Docklands at night yeah. where we're firing submachine guns. And I hadn't really considered the fact that you can't fire submachine guns in the heart of the city, uh, or certainly not in Docklands, in the middle of the night without causing panic. So they had these guns which uh, fired blanks. The bullets would still come out of the top of the gun like they do in a real right, machine gun, yeah. but they were totally quiet. <laughs> <laughs> they just went... <laughs> And they put the sound on afterwards. Well, on the uh, on the Sweeney, um, which had a, a gunfight in Trafalgar Square, and they couldn't fire guns or squibs in Trafalgar Square, so they, they had nothing at all. Everything was CG. Oh, they, really? You know, so they literally had to go... Little movements. And, and then pretend, I'm ducking, I'm ducking, I'm ducking. The so, magic of the movies. The magic of the movies. <laughs> Mark, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully yeah, we'll have you back uh, for Wonder the Punch. I'd Thank love you. to come. Okay, cheers. Thank Thank Bye. Lovely Mark Strong. What a guy. Lovely, lovely Mark Strong. Uh, Time for this week's movie news. Helen. Hello. I have two stories, both in the realm of children's stuff being adapted for the screen, so I thought I'd mash them together. Yep. Uh, The first is the very exciting news that the Graveyard book, Neil Gaiman's fantastic, multi-award winning, um, sort of kind of macabre take on the Jungle Book, I guess, is um, back in development this time and Ron Howard is in talks to direct which is kind of interesting so it's back to being a live action property so at one point Neil Jordan was going to make it then it seemed to be set up with Henry Selleck which I for one was very excited about given the good work he did with Gaiman's Coraline and now it's with Ron Howard and is back in the live action sphere Um, we don't know anything more than that it's very early days it's just in talks but at least somebody's still trying to make this thing because it's a great great story uh, wasn't Ron Howard attached to something last week as well? Yeah, that was the adaptation of the Israeli uh, drama All That I Am. All I've Got. All I've Got. All I've Got. Um, so uh, I don't know, you know, this. I don't know where this would happen in a schedule. I don't know if this would be something you'd do quickly or not. Um, you really want to get the script right on this because, as I say, the book's a multi-award winner. It's a kind of a modern classic, really, and you don't want to you don't want to mess that up because it could be a really enduring film. So that's that's story number one. Mm-hmm. Story number two is a weird one, but I think really, really adorable. Um, the Rock is apparently attached to a project called Teddy Bear, which is based on a picture. Not a film, just a drawing. It's a drawing. It's kind of cool. It's on our website. Uh, go have a look. But it's basically by a guy called Alex Panagopoulos. I mm-hmm. hope I pronounced that right who uh, basically drew this tiny little teddy bear uh, standing on a kid's pillow holding a toy sword and shield uh, while this giant sort of monster kind of crouches over both of them. So it's kind of the teddy bear protecting the kid from from giant monsters as, as she sleeps. Um, and it's a, it's a really cool image. And basically the idea is they're, they're making that into some kind of story. So I guess it would be a hero teddy bear who protects kids from monsters. Or played by... The Rock. Maybe voiced by The Rock, or maybe he'd be the dad and the pet bear would be CG generated. We'd literally know nothing else. Apparently, uh, uh, Bo Flynn, who produced uh, Journey 2 with The Rock and New Line Cinema, who were also uh, the Journey people, um, are behind it. And that's all it is for now. So chalk it up almost to the... It's not a rumour, but, you know, it's almost at that level, at that stage of development. But it sounds kind of intriguing. If you, Again, if you see this picture... It could be quite a cool-looking film if you've got big, giant, scary monsters and small, adorable teddy bears fighting them. Where will this end, though, if people are now making (laughs) movies based on pictures? We've had movies based on games, on theme park rides, on, you know, ridiculous stuff. I mean, Battleship, for God's sake, you know, this... What was ridiculous about that, Helen? It's a great strategy-based game. I don't understand. You're quite right. It lends itself immediately to a film... uh, adaptation. You're quite it? right, Chris. Doesn't I apologise. I, I take recently it all back. 
pitched a film which was uh, based on a receipt of a ADSL modem I bought on Amazon, <laughs> um, which I printed out and I just just handed it to to a couple of directors I won't name them uh, and, and yeah I've got a and few now, people a little interested <laughs> wow. bingo it's a sequel for Tron right Phil going into your modem what about a menu right yep you've got your three act structure in place starter main course dessert it's perfect <laughs> where does cheese fit in uh, it's a sequel uh-huh. mm, see perfect and now you've got your three act structure again because you've got to have your hard cheese your soft cheese and your goat's cheese see Uh, breaking news just come through uh-huh. about J.J. Abrams <gasps> maybe is going to direct Star Wars Episode 7 and because what? yes this is this news is so big right. so huge that we've come back in on Friday morning to record a bit for the podcast specially which means we've lost Ali and Phil right they were way late by Wampus sadly oh, uh, but Dan sad. Jolin is here he's popped into the pub yes. to, to talk JJ I did the Kessel Wars Run just to get here how many parsecs oh less than nine isn't parsecs like a unit of distance I think you'll find it's a unit of distance stop it anyway yes so right so just to be clear this is some weird time travel shit going on right so now we, yeah JJ would love this uh, so in case you've been sleeping under a rock on Hoth uh, the news broke last night that JJ Abrams may be directing Star Wars Episode 7 and was revealed by the, the website The Wrap that an insider close to the production said that Ben Affleck and JJ Abrams were competing to direct the movie mm-hmm. uh, which is out in 2015 of course uh, and that JJ clinched it because of his sci-fi credentials but mm-hmm. Ben Affleck's got better hair so I don't really know who to go with in this one but that's just say for example it hasn't been confirmed yet it's still a rumour but J.J. Abrams directs Star Wars Episode 7 Dan is this good news bad news or indifferent news well it's good thanks Dan <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you came all yes. this way oh I absolutely loved Star Trek I mean you know uh, before before that obviously there had been uh, Mission Impossible 3 which I thought was half a great film um, um, and then Star Trek came along and it was an entirely great film um, and, and I wasn't really sure what to expect from that so it makes me pleased about this mm-hmm. um, obviously lots of names have been coming into the mix and going out of the mix and um there are I'll be honest there are other filmmakers that could have done it that I would have been more pleased about but uh-huh. as it happens I think JJ's a very very strong choice such as very quickly what the other the other mm-hmm. guys the other guys well actually I'm going to be honest I was kind of in my head of who I would like to do it <laughs> Which I think, to be honest, is probably about as reliable as any of the other news we've had on this thus far. Okay. But yeah. uh, no, I think Matthew Vaughan would have been good and he was actually genuinely uh, cited by sources at mm-hmm. some point. Um, I think Rupert Wyatt would have been good as well. Helen hey. made a wrinkle face at Matthew Vaughan's name there. Explain wrinkle face. I, del- I deny it all. No, I like Matthew Vaughan. I just, I, I don't immediately feel oh my goodness I want to see Matthew Vaughn's Star Wars I I, I like him he could have done a great film Hmm. I'm sure but I I don't I don't immediately get that but is there a sense that uh, Matthew Vaughn is someone who he's a bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to the movie he flits from gangster movie to to fantasy to comic book to different kinds kinds of comic book movies so he wouldn't necessarily stylistically get in the way of a a Star Wars movie and maybe JJ has a bit more of a stylistic imposition I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's fair at all actually I think 
JJ's brought his own touch to things without getting in the way of them, if you will. So I think, I mean, again, you know, he's worked across all different genres, mm-hmm. you know, everything from sort of Alias on TV to Felicity, for goodness sake, to, mm-hmm. you know, Star Trek, uh, Super 8, etc. So I don't think he's uh, exactly limited in terms of what he's interested in. He's a huge, huge Star Wars fan. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's, it's already been said that was his main kind of... Uh, hesitation really into in taking the job or in putting himself forward for it because he just wasn't sure he wanted to be the guy to mess it up um so if he does sign on and if it does go ahead it's going to be because he thinks he can do something really good Mm. with it and something that will satisfy him as a fan first and foremost as well as you know whatever ambitions he has in his directorial career i think that's almost secondary probably for him at this point so i'm i'm kind of excited to see what he'll do Mm. but but what's wrong with a bit of style imparting a bit of style a bit of uh, a few directorial trademarks. Nothing. What's, what's wrong with that? Nothing's I think, wrong with that at if all. anything, that's, you know, um, one of the big problems with the last three Star Wars movies. That, I, I always that, feel you know, that they were, they were pure George and, and they, they just kind of felt oddly lifeless. I always feel there's a, a very classical style associated with Star Wars that the, 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 the biggest visual kink about them are the editing wipes. Uh, for example, it's re- it always weirded me out and jarred with me or jar jarred with me in Phantom Menace <laughs> when suddenly he, uh, George just threw in George uh, just threw in a, uh, a, a 3PO POV shot do you remember that when uh, uh, when Jake Lloyd's Anakin goes into his bedroom and 3PO is there and he's half constructed and he mm. follows his POV suddenly follows Anakin around the room and then there's these little weird stylistic touches in, in uh, the five star Attack of the Clones when uh, it, it suddenly feels like there's handheld camera mm-hmm. it's just uh, but those mm. always jarred with me I always oh, find that. Star Wars works best when it's just very classical and clean yeah but I just think I think you know obviously there'll be lots of and there have been lots of lens flare gags but yes. there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with a director coming in to a, an established franchise and saying, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to do it my way a bit. I'm going to, I'm going to bring some of these things that I like to do, and, mm. and, and you know, you know, cast Simon Pegg in something." And, and yep. actually, also, I mean, you know, that was a, a specific choice he made. I think for Star Trek, it's not mm. something that he's, you know, brought over whole scale to say Super Eight and everything since. So, you know, it's it's not like we JJ we, Abrams and Lens Flare are inextricably linked, <laughs> except <laughs> except in the public imagination, perhaps. Yeah. So I think he'll 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 think of a new trick if you. Well, for yeah. uh, for Star Wars, if that happens, a yeah, moratorium on the lens flare guys. Yes, I, I think. think. Yeah, I think so. But also, I mean, you know, uh, the same guy rebooting Star Wars and Star Trek. Perhaps this could reunite these warring fandoms and bring peace to the galaxy. I don't know. This is a controversial move. This is like uh, Carlos Tevez moving from Manchester United to Manchester City. This I'm going to nod like I know yeah. what that means. And Dan will oh, nod yeah, as well. Well, yeah, football, football, yeah, yeah football. Yeah, James, who yeah. have. Yeah. So you'll yeah. agree that there's probably be a big sign in Coruscant saying welcome to Coruscant with J.J. Abrams' face on it right now which is infuriating the Star Trek fans but yeah, just yeah. like what happened when Tim oh what yeah, that, that, that I remember thing. that well do you remember yeah. it oh it was incredible you were wasn't it? I, I was you were that, I mean incensed. when I say incredible I mean oh, incendiary yeah football <laughs> anyway yeah so this is quite a controversial move in a way do you think we might see a part exchange Chewbacca moves to the Star Trek universe Worf uh, takes his place on the Millennium Falcon I'd go for that that'd be amusing no. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, actually, Chris, you're forgetting that one is in a galaxy far, far away and the other one and long, long ago. Yeah, yeah but all they have the to do is the fly future. the Enterprise around a sun and then they'll be in this time of the Star Wars 
You are the time you, you, of Star Wars. Speaking of wrinkling your nose when you say something, Dan. <laughs> they'll, they'll go. There'll be a bit where they all go whooshy, and then there'll be like flying statue heads going through the air, and then they'll come out, and then they'll be on Tatooine. Oh, are you saying crossover? What's what you thought you were saying? No, I was saying like no, 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 no. Do you think Star Star Wars Episode Seven might mm. actually also be Star Trek Three? <laughs> That's no. what I'm saying. What I was suggesting previously was a transfer between the two films. But what I'm now saying is that they're the same film. Uh, okay. So how would this fit in with a football analogy? <laughs> it doesn't. Right. It doesn't. But there you I'm, go. I'm actually quite surprised, or I will be quite surprised when this actually becomes hard news, um, that that they would actually that the Paramount would be pleased or that Disney would be happy with the no. idea of having the same guy having two huge well established science fiction franchises um, so <clears throat> yeah I mean he makes a lot of sense in terms of his credentials but I wonder whether the studio politics is is is, is just crazily complicated on this one it does seem uh, very reminiscent of the time Brian Singer left the X-Men franchise X1 and X2 to go to the Superman Returns mm-hmm. and didn't complete his trilogy and then we all know what happened then mm-hmm. um, yeah. but this I don't know it's, it's going to be very interesting but it, it did seem that JJ was very much locked in to do his mm-hmm. Star Trek trilogy mm-hmm. but then he did always said I was always a Star Wars kid not a Star Trek kid mm-hmm. yeah um, so and people did say the Star Trek felt sometimes more like a Star Wars film than a Star Trek movie but we shall see yeah we shall. I mean, you know, it's 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 very a very interesting development. If Steven Spielberg can make Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year, then J.J. Abrams while can make also it. editing Animaniacs. That that's the bit that I love. He was actually shooting Schindler's List, editing Jurassic Park in the evenings, and overseeing Animaniacs. Thank God he didn't get those mixed up. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, so there's no reason why J.J. can't do Episode Seven and Star Trek Three in the same year. As of course, presuming that Star Trek Three is 2015 because it's probably more likely going to be 2016, 16, 2017. Yeah, so he, could, he could do them both. He could do them both. Um, but my question... <clears throat> Matt Reeves will do Star Trek 3. You think? Yeah. Okay. My very last question is, uh, do you think that uh, Michael Arndt was, is on his rider of Star Wars Episode 7 at the moment? Do you think J.J. might break on his uh, trusted team if he commits to doing it, if he is confirmed as a director? So it would be uh, uh, Alex uh, Kurtzman and Roberta Orsi and maybe Damon Lindelof. What do we think? I, th- I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I think that if JJ has overcome what sounded like initial reluctance, it may have been misdirection, all his pr- protestations initially, but if it was reluctance, then presumably uh, what has won him over is the story. I mean, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who'd be won over by a, an, an enormous paycheck. He, he seems like the guy who'd be won over by the chance to do something really cool. And therefore, you've got to hope he already has some kind of faith in the script. Mm-hmm. Um or the treatment or whatever Michael Arndt's come up with so far. Uh, so if that's the case, maybe he won't need to. Um, mm-hmm. That said, if he thinks it needs tweaking, then those would be the obvious people he'd call first, I would have thought. Indeed. Would he get the man who's everything? Episode 7. <laughs> uh, okay, thanks, guys. Let's return you now to our, our regularly scheduled programme. If you loved Band of Brothers like I did, yes. and the Pacific, which largely wasn't quite as good but still brilliant um banner brothers 3 as i'm calling it <laughs> um masters of the air is coming 
Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg executive producing. So Steven Spielberg not resting on his Lincoln laurels. They're getting to work on adapting a book by a man called Donald L. Miller. What's with the middle initial always? I don't know. Anyway, Donald L. Miller's written a book called Masters of the Air. It's about the 8th Air Force, the US 8th Air Force, known as the Mighty 8th, that was based out of England uh, during the, I guess, 1943 to 1945 for the bombing raids on Germany and Western Europe. Um, they supported D-Day, so that Band of Brothers connection there, I suppose. And um, it's undoubtedly going to be big budget. It's HBO. It's got um, Graham Yost. Mm-hmm. At, uh, keen to be attached to it he was obviously involved in Band of Brothers so all the pedigrees there you, you know we know what to expect it's going to be historical it's going to be emotionally involving it's going to have you know probably talented newcomers attached rather than maybe people that you know if you remember Band of Brothers it threw together people like McAvoy Fassbender Dexter Fletcher all of those English guys so considering it's more than likely to shoot you'd think in England again um, this some probably some exciting British actors will emerge from it. We'd hope so on a Banner number of Brothers. levels. Hmm? Banner Brothers, of course, is the show that gave Damien Lewis his start. Yeah. Absolutely, and Damien Lewis, yeah, catapulted him really, yeah. and, and and obviously that's kind of come to fruition more with um, with Homeland. But nobody really got a boost from the Pacific in the same way. Am I right in thinking? James Badgedale, <laughs> I think, is getting some good roles now. He's in Flight and Iron Man um, Three, and Iron Man Three, and I. I love these shows. They have Spielberg's veracity and love of history. And so they have an authenticity about the way that they're shown, which perhaps Red Tails didn't capture. I quite like Memphis Bells. It, it's a little bit of a Hollywood <laughs> schmaltz fest. But it, again, it shows you that these guys were like, they were coming from, they probably hadn't left Alabama. And suddenly they were in England and they were flying these flying fortresses over Germany. A third of them were killed. And, and the, the, you know, it's going to have some tough moments like the Pacific did, I'm sure. But um it's going to be an intense ride, I imagine, when we see it on the screen. Does anyone remember the, uh, was it the pilot episode of Amazing Stories, the Spielberg-directed one? Yes. Where Kiefer Sutherland and, is it Kevin Costner? Kevin Costner, yeah. Are in the uh, plane, the flying a bomber on the way home, and everything goes wrong, and their equipment fails, and their wheels don't work, and then suddenly the power of magic saves them, and one of the guys draws... One of them draws, is a cartoonist, yeah, he and dra- he's been drawing yeah. planes with sort of cartoon feet. Yeah. And, and cartoon feet appear under the plane and they land safely. It's amazing. Well, so will, will Masters of the Air be anything like that? <laughs> I hope so. That would be incredible. <laughs> yeah, someone in the back, can you stop drawing Messerschmitts, please? <laughs> and then it just cuts to, and then Hitler stopped being evil and we were all happy again. Uh, <laughs> Ali, what have you got? And then a teddy bear with a sword turned up <laughs> just killed everyone. Daniel Day-Lewis is already cast as Hitler, which is going to cause problems in the canteen. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Now here he's already annexed Lowestoft in uh, as preparation. Ali, what have you got? I've got two stories for you. One was a story that Chris was actually there for its naissance. Is the and you did a spit take? What? I was. Yeah, yeah. Arnie. Oh, Arnie. Yes, yes. I've heard of him. You know the Arnie guy. Yeah, I know. You'll be hearing more from him uh, yeah. later in this podcast. <laughs> we'll- uh, he he was at a press conference. I must say, a very well hosted press conference recently in London Town, and I would say moderately thanks. moderated. But thank you, moderately moderated. Mm. Uh, he uh, made mention that three of his upcoming projects that he was most excited about were the twin sequel triplets, mm-hmm. King Conan, and Terminator the Fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would call it that. That'd be amazing. Now he didn't go on to add any great detail as to no. what was happening there, who he'd be playing, if he'd just be the voice of someone, whether he'd be playing a teddy bear with a sword, nothing. He seemed to hint, he seemed to indicate very, very strongly he would be a, a Terminator. 
Mm. That, that was afraid because it was a question someone had asked him a question about uh, which of his characters would win in a fight if they all fought each other <laughs> and he he answered this question by saying oh all well, my characters are law abiding and they'd all team up and they'd all be friends except for the Terminator who would be on the other side he was not uh, on the side of the law and I said well you know would they the Terminator would win surely he went well I do not know we'll find out in Terminator he basically says we'll find out in Terminator 5 because that's been written now and everyone kind of leaned forward a bit and went excuse me now what now they didn't say anything else about it apart from that well there but, you go that's the news that he is directly connected to the project which is being written by two people whose names I can't pronounce but I'm going to give it a go later Leater, yeah Leater, mm-hmm. uh, Calo Gridis I'm sure that's right close enough yeah, and Patrick so. Lucier. Lucier. Damn it. Anyway, so they're both writing this currently, I imagine, over one typewriter together in a room. <laughs> That's a how it works. moth going around a light bulb is how it's going to work. Didn't you sit on the tiniest table at the press junket? Yeah, yeah. It was I don't know why that sprang to mind, but I just had a vision of you no. just trying to get in under Arnie's bicep. Yeah, I got, I got, we got to the table and uh, I realised it was quite small. It was quite a cosy squeeze. And I was basically bicep to whatever the hell it is I have. With Arnold for a half an hour, it was our our, our legs were touching. At least Pisep, I think it was maybe? our legs. Actual steps. The mushroom box of mushrooms. What would that stand for? So for pie. Pie. Like P-I-E. In, I eat pies. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Fat. That's essentially, so mean. essentially, that's what you're saying. <laughs> that's so. Mean. Thanks a bunch, Helen. I was going to say myself. I think you're a fine figure of a, of a fellow, Chris. That's the best yeah. way to deal with a, somebody taking the mick out of you is just going, so let me get this straight. <laughs> I eat a lot of pies. That's the meanest thing ever. I actually don't eat as many pies. I'd like to clarify, think. I've never seen you eat a pie. I don't like pies. You yeah. inhale pies. I inhale pies, <laughs> yes. Um, have you any more? I do, I, do, I do have one more uh, yes. story yet, uh, which is Bruce Willis has been confirmed uh, uh, for Sin City 2. Oh, good. And I bring this up because it's got over 2,000 likes. On our uh, on our page, uh, so I just thought some people might also want to know. Or Bruce Willis has two thousand computers and he's ticked like <laughs> on all two thousand of them. Those are two possibilities. <laughs> I'm going with the second one myself. Yeah. You know, um, you don't need a computer for every time you hit like on Facebook. Bruce Willis does know that. Oh. he buys a new computer every time he has to like something on Facebook. Why do you keep thinking? Why do you think he keeps doing these movies? You know, <laughs> is that why he keeps doing? <laughs> he needs a new Dell. Die hard. <laughs> all these computers, guys. Help me! Help me! Anyway, um, this may confuse some people, not that, you know, you guys are dumb, but some people have been going, uh, why is he back in Sin City 2 if he died in the first one? That, that was me, <laughs> but not in that voice. Which anyway, is a shame, really. If he was incapacitated in the first one, and that's because this is set, part of Dame to Kill For will be set during his story with Nancy. What's interesting to me about all of the uh, Dame to Kill For casting announcements is that we still don't appear to have... At least it hasn't been announced that we have the dame a dame to kill for so i'm kind of intrigued as to what the heck's going on there didn't robert rodriguez say ages ago and they did say that they'll be rolling out casting announcements oh sure yeah so knowing our luck it'll be announced three seconds before this podcast goes live on friday but uh, anyway um I'm, didn't he say a few years ago he was looking for angelina Jolie? yeah well she was lined up for it and uh, then got preggers <sighs> but she's no she's not preggers now isn't she I don't believe so. Well, there you go then. She's got no excuse. Uh, other people who are also on the cast list, just to fill you guys in, are Ray Liotta, Juno Temple and Jeremy Piven. All people whose names I can pronounce. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> I was at a press conference once in Cannes where the moderator uh, introduced, it was an entourage press conference, and the moderator went, uh, please welcome uh, Adrian Grenier, 
Kevin Connolly, Kevin Dillon, and the other one who plays Turtle, and then uh, and uh, as Ari, uh, the actor Jeremy Piven, and he went Piven, and it was very embarrassing for everybody concerned. Was that because he ate a lot of pies? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. He was my he was my role model mm, in I many ways. Oh, let it go. Yeah. Um, what well, I was called fat. No, you fat. Weren't. Unprovoked attack. I was just role trying to think of an pun, amusing right? word to contrast with bicep. It was a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Anyway, I'm delighted to say the Empire Podcast is proud to welcome Arnold Schwarzenegger back to active duty. Big big fans here. The Austrian Oak, the Governor, whatever you want to call him, returns to bona fide lead duties after his flirtations with cameos in The Expendables and The Expendables Two with The Last Stand. And when he came into London this week with co-star Johnny Knoxville, Nick Desemlian and I just had to chat to him about coming back, about fighting Bennett in Commando, and about being mauled by giant cats. Enjoy. But we are delighted to be joined by Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Johnny Knoxville. Guys, welcome to London. Thank you. Uh, what's London mean to you? Do you hang out here often? Do you come around? Do you have anywhere you like to go? Any tourist traps? Well, to me, uh, London means a lot because with the age of 20, I became the youngest Mr. Universe ever mm. right here in London, uh, which was the NABA Mr. Universe contest. And... Um, that was kind of like uh, the springboard uh, for my career, for my international success. And uh, based on that, I was then invited to go to America, and that's when my life kind of took off. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I always enjoy coming back to London. I have old friends here. Um, I enjoy riding the Boris bike. <laughs> I enjoy you know, visiting uh, you know, uh, your Prime Minister Cameron. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and, uh, I, I, I really—it's fun also to be back in to see for the first time snow in London. <laughs> I mean, this is not a common thing, may I remind you. So I don't know how well I'm gonna do out there with the Boris back the day in the <laughs> snow, sliding around all over the place. And maybe you have to get some stunt adjustments or get 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 a stunt get a stunt coordinator to ride the bike through London. We'll go film a bit for Jackass. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Do Jackass four right here in the snow. Sure. Absolutely. And, and, and Arnold, coming back to Last Stand as an action hero, reuniting with your stunt team, because these are guys you've been working with for 25, 30 years. What, what was that like? It's, it's great. I mean, it, it, I think that uh, everyone uh, wanted to make sure that, I'm, uh, f- that I feel comfortable with it. But I think the very fact that I work out all the time and that I'm in pretty good shape uh, was very helpful to jump right back into it and to get into uh, the stunts and to practice it and all this. And I'm, of course, a, a fanatic about mileage or about reps. And I learned this from sports. The more you do something, the better you are. And so I do my stunts and all this uh, physical stuff over and over before I ever shoot it because I want to make sure that it works. And that keeps you also in shape. But it also makes the stunt coordinators and the stunt people feel comfortable that you have your act together. Johnny, do you have a favorite Arnold uh, movie? And uh, Arnold, is it true that you've seen Jackass? And what are your thoughts on that? I don't. I can't pick one. I, they keep asking me to pick one. I'm such a big fan of all his films, but uh, Conan's special to me because it was the first one I saw. But you know, I love uh, Terminator and True Lies, and he's great in the comedies. Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a very big fan. So am I. I'm a big fan of of, of Johnny. My whole family. Uh, they are every my kids, 
Uh, everyone in my family were big fans and are big fans of Johnny. As a matter of fact, when I, when I told my son, Patrick, I said that uh, Johnny's in the movie, he said, oh, I'm going to come and visit you. I said, I said to him, I, said, I thought you were going to come to visit me. No, 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 I just, I, that's old hat. <laughs> I'm going to go come down there and watch Johnny Knoxville act and do all this crazy stuff. I can't wait. And he was very enthusiastic about it. So we all are big fans of his. Arnold, I read your book, Total Recall, and there's a passage that I love where you're a boy in Austria and you're attacked by a cat called Mookie, which I thought was kind of a jackass kind of type, type kind of thing. Uh, you've, you've tangled with quite a few animals in your, in your career, and I guess you have as well, Johnny. <laughs> What's the most memorable kind of, kind of moment for you? Is it the alligator from a razor or the bear from Hercules? Well, no, actually, the, the, the wildest thing was um, I, I'm a big fan of, of wild cats. And... Um, I, I was so mesmerized by the fact when I visited George Foreman, the, the heavyweight fighter, um, when he was in his prime in the 70s. I went up to San Jose to visit him, and he had a cougar, and he had a black panther. And they would just attack him relentlessly, and he would just roll around with him because he was so big, George Foreman. He weighed like 255, 260, and he was tall. He was like 6'3", 6'4", yeah. and he just would wipe out everybody. You know, <laughs> Joe Frazier, as you remember, with one shot lifted him off the ground and wiped him out. You know, so, so he was a, a monster. But I loved the way he played with his animals. So I always wanted to do that. So I remember when I went down to Mexico uh, to, to shoot Total Recall, they at the uh, studio Cherubrusco, they had uh, in the back a zoo. And there they had animals that you could use for the movies. And they just had these two uh, cops. The, the one was a, lion, uh, was a cougar cop, cop and one was a, uh, a, a panther. And so I said to myself, oh, this is really reminds me of the George Foreman scene. I said, <laughs> can you bring those animals every Saturday to my trailer? And then instead of having lunch, I just play with them. <laughs> and so they brought those this, this animals every, every, every weekend. They brought it to my trailer. And we played and we played and we played. And then all of a sudden, it was like not that they were not three months old. They were now six months old and seven months old and eight months because the shoot in Mexico took around six months, right? So they, they got to be almost nine months. So I had them inside the trailer one time. And then I left them, turned around and walked towards the front of my trailer. And then all of a sudden, the one attacked me. Just jumped seven wow. feet through the air took me down, I landed with the head on the steering wheel of the, of the truck, and I realized then that this is the time is over now to play with these things, that now it's getting to be serious business, that they are so powerful, that they're, they're growing up for so, so quickly. So that was one of my things, that this cat almost took me out. I mean, it was like, as I said, okay, it was the last visit, now let me go and visit them over there at the zoo. Johnny, can you beat that? Uh, I, I can't beat any of his stories, but I am uh, very partial to filming with bulls because <laughs> they are just dying to act. You know exactly what you're going to get. They just hate you, and they're going to stomp you, and yep. all you got to do is say action. <laughs> so you don't do anything to antagonize them in any way? No. Well, they, you know, they say bulls hate red, the mm. color red. They, they can't see colors. Mm. They hate movement. And if you just give a little movement, they're going to get you every time. And they also <laughs> drop their head right before they hit you. So I've, I've learned to try and jump right before they hit me. So I'd rather be on top of the bull or flipping than be under the bull, which I've, I've made those both mistakes. <laughs> and Arnold, when you announced you were coming back to acting, I imagine the very next day you had a stack of scripts this big. So why did the last stand? stand out over everything else you were you were offered 
Well, actually, that's not really the way it happened uh, because I had a relationship with Lorenzo Benaventura because we did Eraser together and we did Batman and Robin together. And uh, so there was a relationship there. And he and I had uh, lunch uh, before I uh, finished my governorship. And he said to me, he says, you know, we should do something together. You know, we, with me, you feel comfortable. I have a bunch of scripts. And yes, like you said, there was a bunch of scripts like that. But the one that he gave me was The Last Stand. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, I'm bringing over from South Korea this great director, Kim Chi Woon, mm -hmm. and you should meet him. He says, uh, and I said to him, I said, look, I'm still a governor. I say, it's now November, uh, beginning of January, I'm finished. Let's get together then. I don't want to have one foot in this life and one in this life. I just want to finish my job, pay attention to it, and, and kind of run through the finish line rather than kind of, uh, you know, okay, I'm finished now. Let's uh, plan my life, uh, what, what I do after the governorship. So anyway, so that's what we did. We then met again in January. We met with the director, and, and, and I read the script then and reread it and analyzed it. And uh, it was very clear that this was actually a very good story and something fun to do for me and to work with a talented director like Kim Chi Woon. And so we, we went into pre-production and started working on that. Let's talk of Triplets, Terminator 5, King Conan. A film that a lot of your fans would love to see a sequel to is Commando. And we, we went and saw it on the big screen not too long ago here in London and it was packed out, huge reaction. Is that, is that a film that you are very fond of yourself? I think Commando was a fun movie to make, and um, I, I, I think that if they ever do a sequel to that movie, I think that would be fun to do. Uh, it was one of my first action movies that I've done after Conan, because I remember there was Terminator, and then after Terminator was Commando, and then it was Predator, and uh, in a raw deal in those movies. So um, that was the very beginning of my action career, actually. What are your memories of that final fight with Bennett? Because that's an amazing kind of sequence. Well, it wasn't that grid. And so it uh, uh, had sharp metal edges mm -hmm. on the floor. And I remember that I landed with Benny Dobbins, was his name, the stunt coordinator, who did the actual fighting with me. And um, uh, the actor didn't do the fighting. It was Benny Dobbins. And uh, he... He landed on top of me, and I hit with my elbow that grit, and it dug, uh, the, sharp, the sharp edges dug deep inside my elbow and my tricep, and blood was pouring down, and there was like a chunk of meat hanging out, and we just continued wow. fighting. And, uh, but I mean, this was the old days, you know, <laughs> so that was the way you did it, because you just wanted to do the scene and not whine about this and that you know it was natural that I would be bleeding since it's a reality and uh, so we just kept moving on and it was we did this fight scene throughout lunchtime and then at three o'clock we were finished and then I went to the doctor and got stitched up and all those kind of things. <laughs> um, the, the films that you've committed to since you've came back since you come back Last Stand 10 which you've just finished filming I believe and The Tomb all are R-rated movies was that Something you deliberately wanted to do to get back into that arena? No, I think that you don't choose movies if they're R-rated or, or uh, PG or PG-13 or any of those things. You you just choose movies because you like the story. And um, in this case, again, with The Tomb, uh, it was offered to me two years ago, uh, right after I, I, I finished the governorship. And I was too busy with other projects. 
and then Sly took the, the job and took the movie. But then he came to me and says, I want you to be my partner because it was kind of a partner uh, in a ship to break out of a prison. Mm. And uh, so he asked me then to, to, to be his partner. And there. So I didn't want to turn him down, in, and including the script was really good and it was fast-paced and everything. So I, I, I committed to that. So that was kind of the second one. And then 10 was the third one I wanted to work with that director. He just came out at that time with the end of Watch. Mm. Uh, David Ayer is his name. And he's an extraordinary director. Very dramatic, really good. Uh, believes in uh, you know, the method acting and all that stuff. Uh, and he was very interesting to work with also. And that, that movie turned out well. I'm going to see the first cut uh, probably sometimes this spring. Oh, wow. And I'm saying Jackass 4. Make it happen. Get this guy on board. Well, we would be honored. <laughs> Huge honor. <laughs> we'll see. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely Arnold. Fabulous. Lovely, lovely Arnold. Um, and Johnny Knoxville as well. He was very nice. Yeah. There you go. But a bit quiet. A bit quiet. Um, I think maybe he recognised that he wasn't the main story there. We should say he came into the office once and was lovely. No, he did, he did. He's a very, very nice man yeah. and very, very funny. But I think he recognised that Arnold was the draw. Fair enough. In the room. And and, and stood back accordingly while I was eating pies. Uh, okay, movie reviews time now. Before we start, we hadn't seen the Peter Farrelly produced all-star comedy movie 43 at the time of recording. We recorded this on Wednesday because it wasn't screened for press, which is always a good sign. Fantastic. As is spelling Sean William Scott name wrong in the TV spots. Have you noticed that? Fantastic. One N on the TV spots. And they also say it's the greatest cast ever assembled, which they preface with um, Anna Faris. Um, our review will be up on Empire Online on Friday after we pay to see it with our own cold, hard-earned cash. We will be claiming it back, obviously. World's smallest violin. So honestly. there you go. I know, it's a tough one, isn't it? But So I don't know, if you want to go see Movie 43, it's on you entirely uh, so first up anyway this week is Zero Dark Thirty which did screen for press uh, and Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowles Oscar nominated procedural about the 10 year hunt for Osama Bin Laden spoiler they get him anyway thoughts we gave this film f- 5 stars and I, I completely agree with that so that's a spoiler as well um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw it last year and I was lucky enough to interview Catherine Bigelow last year before the controversy had started but it hadn't gathered quite as much momentum as we've had of late her absence from the best directors make no mistake is because of that controversy at the Oscars she's been overlooked because there's too much noise around this film now for the Academy's taste um, my very convoluted analogy about the torture debate is this in Vietnam in the Vietnam War there was an, an incident where the Viet Cong in an offensive had taken um, had taken a small town in South Vietnam the Americans sent in their air force to bomb the village and um, an American officer was said to have commented in order to save the village we had to destroy it right that is how I feel about this film I think what Catherine Bigelow is saying with the torture and the fact that we invaded Pakistan and we assassinated Bin Laden with no with no recourse to law I'm looking at you Helen because you're the lawyer here and and I'd love your perspective on it is we've done things to defend our values which have in the process sold out our values right now there was a bit that we did torture Al-Qaeda people whatever the controversy did it lead to Osama Bin Laden's capture that's you know there may be a congressional hearing to that effect I'm not sure but it's depicted in the film and Bigelow's depicted in the film because it did happen we tortured people we had black sites on sovereign countries that presumably the governments of those countries didn't know about we invaded Pakistan and we assassinated a terrorist but I say we because I do think we share those values 
Britain and America. The idea of so the we is the West. The West. Okay. Yeah. Well, the West. Well, I think, but yeah, I think the problem is some of the specific actions you talk about were specifically American actions. So that's where it, get, it will get. We'll, we're going to get complaints about it. Yes. What we're saying. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. The question is, did America sell out its values in order to, to protect them? And I think that's what Bigelow. I think what she does with this film, and this is the woman that made Point Break. She's made you know balls are action films, but there's always been a bit of a political strain but in this instance she's just putting it out there and she's letting you see the film and come out and decide what you think america did torture people there are black sites they did assassinate bin laden in pakistan in an invasion on sovereign soil yeah bigelow wants you to make up your own mind about that and and into that void is all of this all of these articles she's been compared with lenny riffenstahl (laughs) crying the most ridiculous some of the most extraordinary stuff and people i think there's a lot of look at me type journalism that's been attracted to this film as a piece of filmmaking we haven't even no one's even really talked about that so much they've just gone this is great but i just want to say i thought this is the most compelling film i saw last year and and i imagine it might well be this year as well i thought it was absolutely mesmerizing it's another film like lincoln that's people in rooms talking never got bored for a minute it's two and a half hours long jessica chastain is astonishing in it the direction is you know the tension building she cranks up the tension brilliantly i don't want to give too much away everyone knows kind of how it ended but she handles that final half an hour scene in a really interesting way yeah brilliant that yeah. I think people will respond to again she's not beating over the head with anything she's letting you make up your own mind she's building the tension without using musical cues or obvious you know edits it, she shoots with four cameras got a great cast in action John Barrowman we've talked about before <laughs> good to see him Picking up from a couple of points you've made there, I felt that the general style of this film and the way it was shot was of a of a pseudo, but pseudo is not quite the right word, documentary. It felt very clean and clear and real. As I was watching it, I felt like I was there and I believed it throughout. Not to the extent I was going, oh, well, obviously this is exactly how it happened, but I felt that this was real and I engaged with it. Um, I also felt, you compare it to Lincoln, it reminded me a lot of Lincoln to the extent that I watched it and I immediately wanted to find out a hell of a lot more about the topic. I wanted to get in deep and read a lot of articles, find out what other people are thinking about it, how it works, how she made it, how Mark Bowl wrote it. It is a fascinating thing, this whole thing, and the way they did it was extraordinary. Yeah. That they, This is a feat of filmmaking. I think I, I completely agree with what you're saying, especially about the realism point. I think that's that's maybe what Bowl brings to the table. I think, you know, uh, Catherine Bigelow is a master of cranking up tension, of creating characters based on actually very little. I mean, if you think about the amount, it doesn't take her a lot to kind of establish somebody. She just hires good actors and, and to an extent lets them get on with it. Um, but I think but what Bowl brings to the table is this kind of very journalistic approach, very kind of investigative journalist. Yeah, very proper journalist. Proper journalist, not, <laughs> not like us. Not us wastrels. No, um, you know, and, and very kind of clean line storytelling. Um, I mean, you know, you don't, you don't, learn anything about Maya's background about Jessica Chastain's background because it doesn't matter that's not what she's about it doesn't matter if she's married or single it doesn't matter if her dad dra- died tragically as a, when she was a kid it doesn't matter if she's a dog at home what matters is what she's doing on the job and I think that's a, a terrific approach I think um, she's been compared to the obvious one Claire Danes in Homeland as a as a woman in a, in a man's world I guess to an extent in this particular mm. you know covert industry but a better comparison would probably be some of the 70s protagonists of 70s thrillers the sort of Sidney LeMay or the Woodward and Bernstein Redford um, for instance that kind of world because you're right it strips away all of the sort of superficial stuff and just is about a woman who's very driven almost you know in a slightly 
automaton sort of way yeah. at times. Quite, quite unhealthy, she frankly. Subvert, she sub- suppresses and subverts her yeah. own emotions. I, th- I think if she doesn't win the Oscar, I think it will only be because of that, because she doesn't get the big Oscar well, emotional yeah. breakdown scene, because that's not oh, what she's doing. Oh, yeah. Justine. Justine, because... Uh, you know, that's the only thing that's kind of standing in. No, in there's, her a, there's a the tiny, there's one or two moments, isn't there? But they're beautifully played moments. But I mean, what's what's great about them is is how they're underplayed. You see it in the very first scene. This isn't a spoiler. You know, the very first scene where she's kind of brought in and she observes um, uh, what they euphemistically call enhanced interrogation, and you can see it all happening in her eyes. But she's very much trying to keep a lid on it and not react visibly. I feel like it's like people in combat. You know. Uh, Kubrick examined it in Formula Jacket, for instance, how it, how it dehumanises and changes yeah. you. I felt that in her performance without it ever being articulated yeah. in, in a line of dialogue. And, and a lot of other things besides, including backstory, which you don't know about, but you can kind of feel it. And uh, that's such a testament to her performance. Definitely. And Bigelow's direction and, and Bowles' script. And I don't mean to excuse the filmmakers from all of the controversy. Uh, they may be a congressional hearing into how they, you know, how he got all this information from the CIA, what access they were allowed. There were yeah. some suspicious emails about, you know, premiere tickets going to and from the CIA to them. Can all you, kinds can you of just stuff. take the stat and say it was a lucky guess? Yes, <laughs> right. That's <laughs> Afro defence. Um, I thought this film was fantastic. I'm not quite as five starry as as you. I prefer the Heart Locker, and um, but there are things I loved about this movie. I, the things I didn't like about this movie were you said it was a room full of people talking, rooms full of people talking, and that's great and attention fantastic I felt there were moments then that maybe uh, Bigelow felt that wasn't enough and she needed to inject some physical peril there's a scene where Maya is attacked and that may have happened in real life but it felt tacked on to me to uh, bring her directly into the conflict Um, and I also there's a couple of issues with the very last shot which I have uh, but we can't really talk about that too much but I love the the attack on the compound uh, and I I love the cast in this movie I love that every five minutes Someone new, recognisable, but just really good, solid journeyman yeah. actors would would turn up, and not just you know that you're half an hour, forty five minutes or more into the movie before Mark Strong turns up, and yeah. for what I thought was his only scene, he turns up and he berates these guys at a CIA heads of department meeting, uh, a bit like one of our issue meetings really, <laughs> and uh, and then leaves and doesn't appear again for half an hour, and then you get James Gandolfini, and much has been made about the John Barrowman cameo, which is only funny for us, uh, not funny <laughs> at all for Americans who don't know that he broke his arm in a pantomime in Scotland a few a few weeks ago, <laughs> or was on kids TV. Um, but there's even someone at the end. There's a guy who appears at the end who was in Boston Legal for ages. Two of the Navy SEALs, you know, there's Joel Edgerton, but also yeah. there's Chris, Chris Pratt, Pratt from Parks yeah. and Recreation, who's probably the main Navy SEAL. And Edgar you know, Ramirez is terrific in Edgar it. Edgar Ramirez, you know. Kyle Chandler Har- is in it from Kyle Friday Chandler, Night Lights. Oh. Harold Perrineau, just really, really good, solid cast all the way through, and, and Chastain carries it uh, on her. And Jason Clark, who was so good in Lawless, yeah, is he's brilliant really good. as the uh, the guy who is the main torturer in chief at the beginning of the, the film. And people say this movie uh, is pro torture. Just look at the effect it has in his character and and, and obviously the people who are being, who are being, being I think tortured. that's ridiculous yeah. the, the idea that it's pro-torture it's ridiculous it is ridiculous um, and anyone who's you know, there, there are people who have jumped in the bandwagon in the States and people like sadly Helen you may not, you may not agree with this but your beloved Martin Sheen has been petitioning people not to vote for this for the Oscars or not to see the movie and you have to wonder have you seen the movie Martin? He, maybe he has maybe he had a different take on it I don't know how you could look at this movie and, and, and come out feeling I, so I don't know I felt like I think this is a movie where she has left enough of a bubble, enough room for people to interpret their own way, that people who walk in, sorry, Lord Sheen, Martin, sir, that if you feel that way you know, already, that you are steadfast, this is the way I feel about torture, you will walk in and feel that. And if you feel you the other so. way around, you'll 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that said, I mean, it does let you make up your own mind, and that's, mm. I guess, a two-edged sword for a filmmaker. But we could talk about this forever. I mean, mm. when when we have when, been, when it seems like. yeah, I know a little bit. Sorry, but when Saving Private Ryan came out, everybody was like, "Where are the English in this film? Well, the British. We invaded Normandy, but you're just showing the Americans." Well, it was I a mean, different beach. It, you know, yeah, I mean, like there were good reasons why there were no British troops in that film. I don't think he was disrespecting <laughs> it. But, you know, every historical event, and this one is magnified because it's so recent. Mm. And, and they're obviously going to make a different film to start with. And then Bin Laden was killed whilst they were writing a different mm. film. So uh, with that in mind, it's a risk. And I think it's going to polarise people. I just personally thought that it was incredibly smart filmmaking. I, I, I agree entirely. I would also use the word brave. I know this is dished out every day of the week for so many movies oh such brave filmmaking this I was like what wow you have got big cojones to, to put this together and she to do really, it so really well does. I'd love to know what Paul Greengrass thinks of this movie and that's not I just you know because I think this is exactly up his street and I think this is maybe the movie he was trying to make a Green Zone but, and I would love yeah. to see what he I'd, I'd just love to sit down and have but a chat with him and see um, what he thinks about this movie Bloody Sunday didn't he which is very clear in its politics mm. this film isn't clear in its politics in the same way it's more ambiguous and it mm. gives you it, it's on you as a you know when we talked to Catherine Bigelow we said this basically you know on you filmmaking yeah absolutely. you see what you tell you know you decide so five stars which means it is a must see and then do let us know how you feel about it when you come out and we'll maybe discuss a little bit more on next week's show uh, anyway next up is a, it's, God, we're bountiful gifts this week and it's because of BAFTA I guess that movies are being scheduled in January which is great because in the way, States it's a wasteland in the States this week they get movie 43 and nothing else this week we get loads of great stuff next up is a multi-Oscar nommed Lincoln Steven Spielberg's long-awaited look at the last months in the life of the great emancipator starring Daniel Day-Lewis as Honest Abe Oscar nominated, of course, and a host of stars from Sally Field, Oscar nominated for this, but cruelly overlooked for her role as Ant-Man, The Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man, to Tommy Lee Jones, uh, again, cruelly overlooked for his role as General General in um, Captain America. Uh, Manfully bringing up the rear. Thoughts on this one? Helen, I'm going to turn to you, if I can, because I'm yeah. so fat with all the pies. Oh, goodness. I apologise for the pie comment. Anyway, I, I utterly love this. Um, this would be... Uh, you know, I, I adored Zero Dark Thirty, but this, for me, pips it. I thought it was an incredible, incredible piece of filmmaking. So uh, the plot is, you know, it's set during the dying months of the American Civil War. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, is trying to pass the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution and basically ensure that slavery can never be reinstated without... What? in the US. Oh, that's a good thing. Yes, yes, that's a good thing. No more slavery. Because he'd, he'd made the Emancipation Pro- Proclamation early in the, or earlier in the war and, uh, and had, in theory, freed the slaves. But as he explains in a brilliant scene, well, possibly from a lawyer's point of view, it's brilliant. But anyway, in a brilliant scene in this movie, he explains why he doesn't think that will stand and why he needs a constitutional amendment. So he's trying to push it through uh, the House of Representatives um, and having a difficult time doing it, and it is—it's—it's um, it's kind of a, a political procedural. It's kind of the West Wing prequel here. If the West Wing was shot by Velasquez, this was—this is what it would look like. It's absolutely stunning. <laughs> so basically, you've got uh, rooms full of men talking. The way you tell this apart from Zero Dark Thirty is that they all have beards. So that's if you're—if you're not sure which one you're watching. That's your giveaway. And also the period costumes. Well, that's a little bit of a giveaway, sure. Yeah. And there's a bit where Lincoln torches someone? Okay, no. <laughs> All right. Um, but, I mean, the, the cast are flawless, you know, as, as well as those kind of the Oscar-nominated top-billed people. You've got, you know, your Joseph Gordon-Levitt. You've got David Strathairn, who's never not good. You've got James Spader, John Hawkes. Um, you just have this wealth. Tim Blake Nelson, you've just got a wealth of talent. Um, Lee Pace is in it, uh, playing a horrendously horrible man. Um, 
but just you know from from top to bottom it's it's just such a good lineup and what's fascinating is again they don't explain anything like zero dark 30 they just throw you in expect you to swim um and and you pretty much do I think it's made, fascinating stuff i think they must have, i think they had conscription for every actor between the age of 40 and 60 they had to turn up <laughs> to, to casting they were films. given a hat and sent into action <laughs> you were given a choice zero dark 30 or lincoln yeah, yeah. yeah. We Actually, were given for the first. I've never been to a screening before where they gave you a, like a photo identi- identification <laughs> page of just beards. <laughs> which beard? It's like guess which who? beard are you looking at? It was a lot like The Hobbit in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does. Ex- it does explain. Um, I mean, when you see the, the the characters next to each other, the characters next to the original people, because they have photographs of most of these people, because photography was very in vogue in Washington at the time. You know, they've done a, a fantastic job of of getting the detail right. There were stories I was reading the making of book. Ben and Bert actually went and recorded Abraham Lincoln's actual mantelpiece clock to get the correct tick. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. He travelled back in time to record Abraham Lincoln's it's voice. It's still there. It's still there. Well, not quite. But but the voice has been controversial actually in the states because they're, they're used to the Henry Fonda Abraham Lincoln from back in what the 30 late 30s early 40s mm. where he was a very deep voice. I am of, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, kind of thing. And this is more of a. I'm Abraham Lincoln. Well, close enough. Well, um, but it's actually this is much more historically based, and this is this is in line with all the historical sources and everything that we know about how Lincoln actually spoke. Apparently, without PA's and massive booming speaker systems, and you know bulletproof grass and everyone in the world being there, he wasn't actually speaking to as many people as you think he was. But he couldn't. If you have a deep voice, the way I do, <laughs> that doesn't come across Ladies. as well to a group of people as a higher pitched voice. So you would purposefully raise your voice so you can mm. be heard better he, absolutely Yanis Kaminsky's camera in one scene where he's on the stoop giving a speech yeah. uh, you're in the you're in the crowd you're you know ten rows back so you, yeah you get a feel for what it would have been like to hear his the voicing was hilarious I have to say watching anyone who reads Jeff Wells's website Hollywood Elsewhere in the build up of this because he hates Spielberg and everything everything Spielberg stands for and he was looking for ways to attack this movie and basically Helen you were saying about the the whole Henry Fonda Raymond Massey very deep voice and he was basically saying Daniel Day-Lewis the greatest actor on earth pretty much pound for pound I would say although John Barman pushes him close (laughs) if Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't have that voice in this movie dead it's dead in the water it's dead to me wipe my hands of the whole thing I won't get nominated for any Oscars it's a load of rubbish and then (laughs) he comes out with this kind of high pitched voice so um, I love that I I'm getting it. I'm getting a strong image of John Barrowman delivering the Gettysburg Address on a pantomime <laughs> horse. Please let us never never speak of this again. Um, actually, the, the Gettysburg Address is, is basically recited to Lincoln by two Civil War soldiers, which I thought was a really nice touch to kind of get it in there without really. Uh, it was Dane DeHaan was one of them, and, and the other one is David Oyelowo, who will be on the podcast very very soon, and he talked about that scene. Well, good. It's a really good script by Tony Kushner. It is a fantastic script. It basically, I mean, you know, they've they've called it an adapted screenplay because it's based on uh, Doris Kearns uh, Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals. It's based on about four pages of that book. I mean, it's a terrific <laughs> book. You should genuinely read it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating explanation of Lincoln, his life and times in his cabinet. Uh, but it's essentially based on a tiny fraction of one chapter of that book because it's so focused in on one part of his life because uh, Tony Kutcher's first draft of the script was 500 pages, which would obviously be a little bit too long. Um, so they've they've really, really narrowed it in. Um, and But they've also just gotten out so much kind of human drama in there. They've got Sally Fields and Mary Todd Lincoln going virtually crazy or certainly on, on the verge of a nervous breakdown following the death of their middle son. Um, they have Tommy Lee Jones as the fiery abolitionist who does not want to compromise in any way 
um, in voting for the 13th Amendment. He wants something tougher or something more, you know, more um, comprehensive in, in tackling the rights of, of uh, African-Americans, but is willing to compromise finally to get it done. It's just it just doesn't have a bum note in it for me. I, the more I think about this, the more I like it. Um, and I really, really hope that it, it does as well as you might expect with those Oscar nominations. I really, really enjoyed it as well, not just because I'm a West Wing fan, not because I actually have an interest in this sort of thing. I've got a couple of points I would like to say. I often complain about movies patronising by over-explaining things. This movie does not do that. But by the same token, I think it might be in your interest to know a little bit about the lay of the land if this is a totally what-the-hell-is-a-Republican-what-the-hell-is-a-Democrat type of deal for you. Watch Bill and Ted's. <laughs> is what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. I good. would actually. That's very a very good point. I would say one thing. Um, if you're used to thinking of, if you watch The West Wing, for example, uh, if you're used to thinking of the Democrats as the good guys, or the liberal guys, if you will, and the Republicans as the right wingers, reverse your expectations. Okay, um, Lincoln, the reformer, is the Republican. Um, the Democrats stick in the muds who don't want to give African Americans any kind of freedom they are the democrats so yeah try and try and keep that straight my other point was that there were a couple of spielbergese moments or spielbergery grace notes that kind of got on my wick and i use the phrase got on my wick because there's a moment with a flame uh, with a candle where there's some fading in and out and it is so upsetting because the whole film is so straight down the line it just gives it to you both barrels corridors conversation screaming shouting we need to do this pay off this guy you know political machinations and then there's this kind of i don't know a bit soapy soppy fading into the light stuff and they're just a couple I can think of two I don't want to say the other one where you go oh that's a shame I think it's fair to say that on occasion for all of his glory he does sometimes struggle to end a movie Steven Spielberg I think I've read Kutcher about this and he said that that was because they wanted to give uh, Lincoln the last word so I'm willing to cut them some slack on this one but I just yeah, I'm, it would be a tiny nitpick for me in a in a very very good meal. That's I I loved it too, and I think that um, it's sort of it's almost like it's one of those goes without saying things, isn't it? But I'm going to say it anyway because I like to state the obvious. But Daniel Day Lewis is. I'll preface this by saying that I thought Nine, which I think was the last time that I saw him. Correct me if I'm wrong. The last time, yeah. Yeah, was one of the worst things I've ever seen, <laughs> on a number of levels, just awful. But he is so incredible in this film. I. We, we watch these in, in screening rooms, in this case at 20th Century Fox, and, it, it, you know, with movie journalists from newspapers, etc. I had a moment where I was just thinking, I'm watching, you know, you said this, I think, mm. watching Lincoln yeah. in a cinema, yeah. Spielberg bringing the cinema bit, Dan Adillo is bringing the Lincoln bit. Um, it's a celebration of rhetoric, the way he delivers the lines, his physicality. He's like almost like Treebeard with a legal degree. He kind of has this <laughs> kind of weariness. It's almost you can see it on his shoulders um, from the burden of, of, of leading his nation in war, a divided nation in war. And um, some great scenes that aren't underpinned with big John Williams musical cues, which I think they're all the better for. Yeah. Um, it's just phenomenal. I can't see any way he won't win the Oscar. And well, honestly, I will personally rush the stage if he doesn't win. I'm not quite sure how I've, I've, I haven't figured that That's out. That's the second time you've threatened that. I am genuinely. He, no one else can win this. I, I'm, I'm laying down the law. All right, but he's up against. Yep. All right. Bradley Cooper. Yeah. He's going to beat that. Joaquin Phoenix. No, I thought he was astonishing. He in the is master. astonishing in the master. It's not as obvious. I'm so. not a huge fan of his. 
But I don't think there's a there's a movement behind. He's quite the negative about the awards, which probably won't help him. Yes, uh, yeah, you actually might be right. So he's up against Denzel, who's brilliant in flight. Yeah, and he's won it twice. But Daniel the film Lewis isn't as good, twice. so that does hamper your chances a little bit. True, true. Uh, and then lastly, and this guy knows how to you know campaign, I guess. Work a room. Hugh Jackman. People love him. People do For love Lehman's. him. Again, I mean, I'm not sure the film has the has the momentum behind it, um, and I'm not sure if it, people appreciate how difficult Hugh Jackman's role was because I think that's a great role. Mm. I, I, I personally just think that Daniel Day Lewis. I had to keep reminding myself he was an actor and not actually Abraham Lincoln. That's the difference for me between him and any of the rest of them. I, I know we just dismissed him at the beginning, but I am feeling a bit bad about that. Bradley Cooper. That film has a heck of a lot of momentum behind it. The biggest voting block at the Oscars are actors, yeah, he's the, and they he's all the f- seem massively keen on that film. I don't think he's the most likely to win from that movie. Um, I think that would be Jennifer Lawrence, but he's sir also appearing in this category. That's what he is. He's fifth in the in the race of five. Yeah, it does sound a bit like that. Anyway, but uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm for example not ruling out Silver Linings Playbook for Best Picture. No, no, nor should we. And we'll talk about that another time. And maybe, maybe who knows? I'm looking at Ali's face as I gauge this. An Oscar special. Yeah, he's just collapsed and died. Anyway, so um, one very, very quick point I want to make about Lincoln, which we gave... Five stars. Five stars, too. Look at that. Um, is that That's for right. a film full of people with beards in rooms talking? It's done incredibly well. And uh, not just 12 Oscar nominations leading the race. It has made, at the time of recording in the US... $161 million, which is pretty damned awesome. Um, compare that to the $37.5 million made by Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter <laughs> last year. Wow. And it's even more impressive than the $58 million made by the Lincoln Lawyer. And that was a bit of a breakout hit. It was a bit of, of a breakout hit. I, I thought it made way more than that. That's interesting. Because it's getting a sequel, but Jack Reacher may not be. Anyway, let's move on. Lincoln, five stars, well done, everyone loves it. Let's move on to Arnold and his comeback. The Last Stand, a violent high noonish tale about a small town sheriff played by Arnold, who has to man up when a lethal Mexican cartel dealer escapes from prison and heads for his town. So, Ali, thoughts? First of all, from the sublime to the ridiculous, <laughs> two five stars. This one is straight off the bat. Three. That's British a good solid three. Empire it's stars. Right down the middle. The word "solid" is appropriate, um, but I'm going to point out a couple of cracks in its solidity. This is not, you know, another T2 or True Lies or Total Recall at all. But by the same token, is not another Collateral Damage. So it's not the Expendables. It is not the Expendables two. It is not exactly. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It could have been, but it ain't. What I will say, though I did enjoy this, this is meant to be Arnold's comeback. He is definitely the lead in this film. For me, there wasn't enough Arnie. I wanted more Arnie. I wanted him hitting people, shouting at people, being Arnie, saying funny things, and generally being a big badass. As it was, he was kind of a kind of a weak cup of tea for the first 10 minutes you see him. Sure, in the last half hour, he kind of really kicks ass and there's some lovely, um, you know, brutal deaths. But generally, it took a long time to get going. The first hour or so, maybe 45 minutes, is this uh, FBI officer, Forrest Whitaker, playing Scream at the map game. You know, yes. Born or whatever, or Born Legacy. It's, oh my God, he's moved to this bit. Ah, get someone on the phone. I need to speak to so-and-so about this thing. Um, that's for about 45 minutes. And there's no Arnie kick-ass. And it, it, it genuinely wound me up. <laughs> Jamie Alexander he performs admirably enough as the uh, very, very pretty... Uh, but reasonably not that you know important uh, a deputy there are other deputies that we 
get to know very briefly. But for me, I was like, I want more Arnie. Uh, uh, you got Luis uh, Guzman, who again can't pronounce properly. He's perfectly good, but I wanted more Arnie. I just expected a lot more oomph from the guy who directed The Good, The Bad and The Weird. And as it was, it felt quite pedestrian at, at times and not funny enough. Uh, you have uh, it Johnny is. Knoxville playing the I'm a total crazy loco. Mm. And at times that was good fun. But again, he's not in it enough either for me. It is a tonally strange movie. Yeah, a bit wonky. Which I think I would expect from um, Kim Ji-Woon, who directed... Uh, I saw The Devil, which isn't a tonally weird movie, but also The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, which is. Um, it is a little bit all over the place, as you say. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, as the FBI's director of exposition, is mm. very... <laughs> it, it feels like a different movie. The scenes where he's hunting the big bad guy, who's Gabriel Cortez, who is uh, this ruthless Mexican cartel, uh, cartel guy who they have in custody at the beginning of the film. He busts out in a really well-staged escape sequence very very imaginative and then goes in a run these sort of almost pseudo fast and furious type sequences this mm. incredible supercar that outruns SWAT teams and cuts a swathe of destruction through America on its way to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's town where Peter Stormare and his team of highly trained mercenaries have already set up shop waiting to transport him over the border yeah. uh, I won't say how uh, and then Arnold gradually realises that, that the shit is about to hit the fan and has to a man up along with his team including as you said Louis Guzman and Johnny Knoxville and Jamie Alexander um, and yeah it feels weird because there's almost this sort of homespun uh, Gary Cooper-ish mm. uh, element about the, this this small town sheriff who of course turns out to have a badass past dispensing wisdom to his to his team and drinking cups of coffee and moaning about having the day off and meanwhile this 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 spectre of violence is heading towards him when they combine when they collide finally in the last 45 minutes it felt to me really like and I said it's in the interview with Arnold it feels like an old school Arnold movie and I loved that uh, there was some really imaginative action mm. uh, Arnie is frankly in his 60s now he can't handle the burden the way that he, he used to I think uh, so I'm glad that they, they, they have people like Rodrigo Santoro and Jamie Alexander and even you know Johnny Knoxville who has some very comedic moments um, he's, he's on the poster he's second build over here in the UK he's in the movie for about 10 minutes so it's an interesting choice I would say but yeah it's it's fun and it's very very funny in the last 45 minutes as well there's uh, there's a, a, a bit with an old lady which brought the house down whenever I saw it so for me this is absolutely solid and it's well directed well directed in a way that I think The Expendables and The Expendables 2 were not and it gets it the tone it gets the tone and the absurdity just about right there's a couple of moments where it descends into mawkishness but it gets it about right for me uh, I understand what you're saying and I, it's a shame that Forrest Whitaker who has in his time performed incredibly well in some fantastic films um, doesn't perform that well in this film which no offence to both Arnie and, and the rest of the cast If you're looking at it as an acting vehicle for Arnold Schwarzenegger you're asking is he rusty after 10 years away you would have to say absolutely I mean he'll admit it himself he was never the world's greatest actor but there are moments in this scene in, in this film especially early on where he's meant to be this just you know kind of regular Joe it feels like he's almost been CG'd into the into the into the film. <laughs> in a way, he seems very very stiff. Um, but then there's a moment later on where he's reacting to grief and he doesn't have to speak, which I thought was actually quite affecting. And then later on, when he's kicking ass, it is the Arnold we know and love. And I actually thought there were moments of action in this that were really inventive and things I hadn't seen before in movies like this. The stuff with the car, the supercar destroying SWAT teams on its way to the, the small town Somerton is really really good. And there's a car chase near the end in a cornfield 
which is something I've never seen before. Two cars in a cornfield, not knowing where they are, and it's a cat-mouse game between two cars, which is very, very cool indeed. So it's a much, much better film than I was expecting. I'll be completely honest with you, and I'm excited, I have to say, for Arnold's next big lead role, which is uh, David Ayer's 10. He's in the tomb of Stallone, but his next big solo outing, Arnold above the title, is 10. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Well, yeah, so if you are excited about Arnold coming back, then, you know, go go have a little look. Three stars for that. What do we say every week? It uh, is a recommendation. Three stars is a recommendation. So there you go. If, if you really want to see Arnold coming back, because this movie, let's be frank, did not do well in the States. 6.4 million. 6.7 It did less than half what uh, the uh, estimated figures. Uh, it would seem that not that many people really care about Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back to the big screen. That's yet to be borne out. I think The Tomb and, and Ten will do very, very well. But and obviously he's retreating I think back to his, his back catalogue Terminator 5 King Conan and Triplets are pretty much sure things so be very very interesting but if you have missed Arnie I think The Last Stand is for you Phil is shaking his head but then you know you, you got your Michael Haneke box out to hug uh, also <laughs> out this week we have two star Spookfest Hollow and four star Korean anime The King of Pigs for your viewing pleasure and that is it for this week Join us next week for more formulated fun when we'll be reviewing the likes of Flight, Bullet to the Head and Hyde Park and Hudson and we'll be talking to Denzel Washington and Robert Zemeckis. Incidentally, the full 40-minute Denzel and Bobby C special will be available from next Monday, so ahead of next week's podcast, so just in case you like that sort of thing. Until then, and until next Friday, you'll be in Helen's good hands next Friday, actually. Isn't, <laughs> isn't this right? Because I've, I've heard there's a pie convention in America, so I'm <laughs> off to that. Uh, anyway, until then... It is goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. Oh, and it's... <laughs> See you next week. Bye.